0: Hello, you're listening to Northern Stages Podcast. When we say podcast, we mean a conversation. A conversation we held on Tuesday, the 11th of August. This week, we talked to Annie Rigby of info Theatre. This is a proper good conversation. It's packed full of great thinking, laughter, and one that will pick you up if you need a little pick-me-up. Have a listen and a much-needed laugh. Morning, everyone. Today, we're going to talk to Annie Rigby from Unfolding Theatre. As always, I have this silent force that is uh, producer Johnny um, glaring at me endlessly. Um, but anyway, uh, more to better things. Uh, Annie, uh, good morning. How are you? I'm very good, thank you. How are you? I'm uh, not bad, actually. Um, yeah, not bad. Um, so, um, we're just going to jump in and just ask you a few questions about you and. Uh, your journey to speaking to me and the ever silent producer, Johnny. Um, so uh, for those of you who don't know you,
1: um, mm.
0: who are you and what do you do?
1: Uh, I am Annie Rigby. I am, uh, amongst other things, I am a theatre director um, and I run a company called Unfolding Theatre, which I set up about 11 years ago, uh, based in the northeast. East. Um, yeah. I'm a mum. I've got two kids. Uh, I am a darts fan. I am uh, somebody who enjoys swimming slowly. Um, yeah, other things. <laughs>
0: well, that's all good to know. I didn't realise you enjoyed swimming slowly. Um, <clears throat> I knew you're a darts fan. Um, so um, you set up Unfolding in, was it 2008?
1: Yep, yep.
0: Um, why did that come about?
1: It came about by a process of deduction, really. Um, I, As you know, I used to work at Northern Stage in in a, a version of what your job became. And I went on sabbatical to do the CLAW leadership programme and you came on a short-term contract to uh, step into my role. And I very quickly, I remember telling you, Mark, I'm not coming back. Make this job your own. <laughs> I remember you saying, Annie, you can't say that. You can't say that. You might decide to come back. But um, what happened while I was on CLAW is it gave me a bit of thinking space. Um, And what I realised was that I had this job of being, the role was then called Resident Director at Northern Stage. I had a job that I was incredibly lucky to have. There are very, very few of these jobs in Newcastle, in the city I live in. Um, And I was frustrated. And having gone through a process of feeling that was all Northern Stage's fault, I realised actually, uh, maybe it was just time for me to move on. And um, and I I spent a bit of time thinking about what, what that might turn into. And I, and I did apply for some jobs outside of the Northeast, but fortunately I had a brilliant mentor as part of the CLAW program in Phelan McDermott from Improbable. And I remember one, just one of those really pivotal conversations that you have in life. And I remember saying to him, Phelan, everyone keeps asking me about leaving the Northeast and I never really know what the answer is. And in his wisdom, he said, maybe it's the wrong question. And I thought, <laughs> that's that's, pretty... uh, that's interesting. And then later in the same conversation, he said, Annie, you know, you might make your best work in the place that you feel at home. And it was very interesting because it was like a moment of permission. Not that Phelan has any authority in my life, but he unlocked an ability for me to think, actually, I could stay in the northeast. And actually, that's really what I want to do. This is, I really, you know, I'm from here and I really love living here. Um, but I also am ambitious, <laughs> and I also want to be ambitious with the theatre that I make. And I don't want staying in the northeast to be a limit for that. So I kind of felt like, okay, well, if I want to leave Northern Stage, I don't necessarily want the equivalent job at Live or at uh, you know another one of the brilliant organisations that is in the northeast. I've got this job, and I want something new if i'm going to make big projects happen that's potentially harder to do that as an independent artist or a freelancer so then i'm going to need to set up my own company so it was like a process of deduction working out if these things are true what what am i going to do with that and at that time in 2008 this isn't true now but at that time there were there had been a bit of a gap there were a number of touring companies that had been set up a bit a bit earlier you know, like open clasp, like dodgy clutch, like Théâtre Sans frontiere. But there hadn't actually, there wasn't actually a lot of people setting up companies at that time, and and, I, and so there was a kind of gap to move into, um, and it was really exciting. And I've been so excited to see the flurry of other independent artists who've gone on that journey since in the northeast. It feels like a totally transformed scene, which is which is a wonderful thing.
0: You know, I think uh, you were a sort of pioneer, weren't you, in that space? Well, I think you were, I think you pull your face, but I think you know that, you know, that um, that you uh, sort of laid quite a lot of groundwork for, you know, other people uh, to, uh, like, you, you opened doors and, you know, laid some tracks down. Um, how did that feel? I mean, obviously at that point you probably didn't recognise it and obviously by your action you don't want to recognise it now. But no, and I, know I, do.
1: I do, I do, of course I do. Um, it's hard, isn't it? It's hard to... Uh, I find it quite hard to think you've made a difference in somebody's life, um, which is a strange thing because you make theatre to have an impact on people. Somebody um, once sent me an email saying they came to see the show that uh, we made with Unfolding Theatre, they came to see Best in the World... And they left their job as a result, and wow. went on to set up um, Northeast Theatre Guide, in fact, uh, and uh, become a writer. And I, and I wow. think that's incredible. Those are those moments you you hope that your work will have an enormous impact. But it's really hard to go, wow. Actually, if somebody does make a really big choice in their life because they've seen me do something, then <laughs> do I feel responsible? But I know that Amy Golding had a very similar trajectory yep. as me based at Live, looked at me leaving Northern Stage, setting up Unfolding Theatre, doing Claw and thought this is a journey I want to go on and obviously has similarly done the, the Claw programme and, and has gone on to set up Curious Monkey and do all kinds of incredible work through that. I know that Kate Craddock, I interviewed her when I was at Northern Stage to come and do a placement with us uh, while you were a performer in the ensemble, Mark, which you'll remember well. Um, and I remember seeing Kate audition and thinking, she's incredible, you know, and she should definitely come and that would be really exciting. Um, and, you know, she did. And, you know, she she sometimes says to me she wouldn't be based in the North if it hadn't been for that. And I find that wonderful and also tricky. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yes. Um, so why do you do what you do? Um, because, you know... Um, Knowing you and knowing the thing you make, you know, and what you say on your website is that it's a big hearted theatre that delights in bringing people together. So could you unpick that for a bit? Why do you do what you do? And where did where did that idea come from about uh, embracing your practices and, and put them into your company?
1: Um, I think I think when I left Northern Stage, I was hungry for a space where... Um, My opportunities weren't defined by a structure that had other needs around it. Um, I had some incredible opportunities at Northern Stage to direct work that I never imagined myself making. So I made a lot of work, as you know, Mark, I made some of it with you, for very young children. And that was brilliant. And I learned an enormous amount through doing that. I did a a massive participatory projects that have really gone on to impact my practice, but I did them because the company needed me to do them. And I was really interested in going, what happens if that's not there? What happens if I'm creating the structure? What stays and what goes of that practice? Um, uh, And it's been incredible. And a lot of stuff has really stayed. So all of my work um, is born out of participatory practices whenever we're making a new show we want to gather people around us who might have interesting perspectives on on the idea that we're exploring and um, you know through spending time chatting making work with them that might have its own life how does that influence what we want to say so for example when we made putting the band back together that was all about um uh, wanting you know kind of having played music. As a young person, and then giving it up because of work, life, kids, and then coming back to it later in life. And so we spent a load of time with a glorious gaggle of people in Sunderland, who were all picking up their guitars or singing again for the first time for in years or making music in all kinds of ways. And we just, you know, spent time with them and s- see what saw where it led. And when we made hold on, let go. More recently, that was all about memory. What do we re- what do we hold on to in our life stories and what gets lost? What do we remember as society and what do we forget or choose to forget? Um, and we spent a load of time with some older women making that show, just talking to them about what they held on to from their life story. And it was amazing that these women in their 80s would talk about decades of their life being like gaps, you know, and kind of sometimes in your life are really fertile. Those are the stories you hold and some bits... Just kind of nothing, nothing to report, which was incredible. So yeah, so a lot of that stuff that had been part of my practice because the company needed us to do a participation project, but, you know, um, and also out of the culture of Alan Lidyard, who was the artistic director when I first began at Northern Stage. He was very, very interested in people who weren't trained as performers, alongside professional artists and professional actors. Um, so that stayed and and some stuff has disappeared for a while. You know, I, I could have become a specialist children's theatre maker and I didn't. But um, I think what has always been true of me as a human and me as a theatre maker is I am quite childlike. Someone once described me as having a very serious commitment to being silly. And I think some of that stuff about big heartedness that I'm interested in with unfolding theatre is I'm interested in people being together. I'm interested in people having a good time. I'm interested in people meeting people they wouldn't normally meet and that being something that feeds them, Um, even though it might have challenge in it as well. Um, uh, I love laughter. You know, I I think I was also really interested in setting up Unfolded Theatre as how is this company, Northeastern, how is it um, of this place and yet not defined by telling the stories of our industrial heritage, which is often the box that Northeast Theatre gets put in. And I, of course, stuff about the minor strike lands with me, you know, I lived in County Durham in, the, in 1984, you know, um, I, I do, I feel those resonances, like, like many Northeast audiences, but also, I recognise that there are a lot of people in this region that that's not part of their story, or it's not something they're interested in. And and there's something for me about laughter that I think is really, really powerful in this part of the world. Uh, sometimes laughter in the face of adversity. Like, I love the big market, like, and the just the, the peacocks of women who come out on a Friday night and a Saturday night and just the the kind of absolute commitment to wildness and laughter and being together. And I just, you know, I think that's something I want my work to have an energy of that in it. I think the Northeast is a very generous place. You know, it's a place that has got communities who have very little, but it is a place that is people... And that generosity often is connected with laughter as well. You know, I remember one of my friends from London coming up here and just being... Like, saying to me how amazed he was that people wanted to make you laugh, people who you'd never met, people you might be standing with at a bus stop would, would make a little <laughs> comment or, you know, you know, say something that you know, they would never see you again, but they they wanted to bring a bit of laughter in that moment. And I think that's something that's, I just think is really, really important.
0: Have you always been proud about being from the Northeast?
1: It's a love-hate thing, eh, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Um I am pretty proud. Yeah, I am very proud. Uh, I mean, I love, like, I love this part of the world and I love the people in it. I hate it as well. Uh, wow. What I love about it is uh, its sense of itself. I don't feel like it's a place that compares itself to anywhere. I think Leeds and Manchester have this screwed- up thing where they're constantly in competition with London and try to prove they can do things that London can do. And I think, because Newcastle is a smaller city and it's a bit further away, I've never felt that that's part of what drives people here. I just I don't feel like we're comparing ourselves to anywhere else there is of course the whole kind of Sunderland Newcastle thing um which you know is its own thing but yeah I think that is something really special uh I love the space that there is here you know I think um the community of makers of musicians and theatre makers and artists are supportive of each other and want each other to do well and are interested in each other and I, th- I think that's really special I hate that sometimes it's a bit parochial. Sometimes we forget to look beyond, you know, but beyond our kind of urban centers, there's a lot of frustration of, you know, why is this not happening in Northumberland when it's happening in Newcastle? Why is this not happening in Teesside? And I I get all of that. I really, really get all of that. And I really think it's important for us to make work that, that reaches all kinds of communities and all kinds of places. But I also think, you know, come on, let's, let's look beyond our borders. Um, I think also we. I grew up in quite a monocultural um, place. You know, I grew up uh, just outside of Rowlands Gill uh, <laughs> in the metropolitan borough of Gateshead. Uh, I went to a school that's now closed down, it was an absolute shithole. Um, <laughs> Uh, and I say that with kindness. Um, I mean, you know, I had some brilliant friends and there were some brilliant teachers along the way, but there was, it was struggling and it had a community that was all very much from, you know, white working class, very, um, it's very, st- and a huge strength in that, you know, of t- sense of togetherness, but also if anybody was other, that was a challenge. And, and, and I think the Northeast is a much healthier place uh, than it was uh, in the growth of its ethnic diversity, certainly, but also it's, um, you know, it, it moving uh, into seeing other ways of life are possible. I mean, I think it's that kind of twin thing, having quite a mono um, culture that came from industrial heritage, you know, that you had these hugely dominating industries of mining and shipbuilding Um then what was the space outside of that? Or, you know, um, and and now those industries have gone. People have to make their lives in all kinds of different ways. And I think people have opened up and accepted that actually you can be an artist, that can be a thing. Like I remember my brother um, being asked, I don't remember it, but it's a, one, a kind of classic um, family story that my brother, who's a year and a half younger than me, got asked at primary school, what does your dad do for a living and everybody's answer was getting put on the on the board and my brother said my dad's a writer and uh the teacher said what does that mean sam and he said you know like does he does he work in an office and my brother said no he works at home and he said well what does he do and, and my brother was like oh um sometimes he mows the lawn um <laughs> and the teacher said the teacher said I'm sorry sam I'm going to have to put him down as unemployed uh, <laughs> which, you know, based on my dad's earnings was not a world away from the truth. But, you know, um, I just think, I think, uh, you know, I, you know, I got bullied a lot when I was a kid because I was a bit different. I came from a family that was seen as posh. I later went on to Cambridge University and went from thinking I was posh to being like uh, having the piss taken out of me for being, in their words, a northern scally, where I was like, "I'm I'm actually posh. But, you know. In the face of Patrick from Monaco, it turns out he went to Eton, and I was like, "Oh, it turns out there's this whole other level of posh that um <laughs> that I hadn't really thought about before then, so yeah, I love that you know you know if if you've chosen to stay in the place you're born, I know you share this as well mark um you you've chosen it for a reason, and you love it, and what comes with that is also enormous frustration that you haven't run away.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, I know I agree, I think you know all the things you've summed up there. I have felt, you know, regularly and in equal measure and considered quite a lot about, you know, why I'm here and what I'm doing here. But at the same time, I do love it here. And, you know, I've had, you know, when I was living in Manchester, I had a a a different relationship to it than I do now, you know, and I just want, like you do, what can be the best for it in all aspects of itself. Um But anyway, it's not about talking about me and my soapboxing, It's talking about you and your work. Um, My (laughs) soapboxing. No, 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 at all. Because I mean, I think, you know, it's absolutely spot on what you're saying about it and the relationship to it. But talking about your work, how do you make work? Um, One of the things that I've been found fascinating about this last 20 weeks is talking to people that I sort of know. And then hearing them talk about their processes and work has been like one of the most enlightening experiences of like of lockdown, and so I just want to hear about how you make work, what your process is, how you go about making an unfolding theatre show.
1: Okay, I'm going to give you my answer, but the caveat is, I always think there's how you make work, and then there's the story of how you make work.
0: Well, tell me or, the story of how you make work. Or the, or
1: the way you remember oh, like, it, because, yeah, you know, yeah, it's like it's hard, it's really hard once the piece is made to to remember the steps along the journey, but I can tell you the ingredients, and um, for how I make work well as I talked about before uh, if there's something I am interested in saying about the world well where does that come from I suppose I suppose sometimes things stay with me and uh, and that's the starting point and they can come from anywhere so I talked about being a darts fan I remember being with my brother at the world darts championship back in ages ago like 2007-8 I mean I've been a few times but there's one particular time I think that's I saw you on Sky once yeah yeah. I was like, that was that was the time. Was it? And it was yeah, and it was Phil Taylor and Raymond van Barneveld in the final and Taylor, you know, had it completely and um and I was watching Phil Taylor who is such an ordinary bloke uh pick up, you know, win win this title and I remember thinking what is it like to be best in the world? You know, because none of us ever know that. So so few people ever get You are, you know, without question, you are the best in the world at this thing. Um, It's such an objective measure of certain things and certain things obviously can't be measured like that. So that kicked off uh, that process. Hold on, let go um, came from, which I said earlier on was all about memory, came from having given, after having given birth to my first child, I realized like I'd lost, I think a lot of women talk about this, huge sections of my memory. I couldn't remember the words to any songs and it's obviously a time in your life. You want to sing more than ever. I just couldn't I just couldn't remember any lyrics. And I suddenly started realizing Wayne, my husband would talk to me about, like, Oh, do you remember when we da 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 and I'd be like, No and he would keep talking and it's that kind of thing where you're waiting for it to come back to you and then you kinda go, that's actually gone. You know, that I just don't hold those I just don't hold that there's a gap there and i think of course that's totally natural that's part of human funct- functioning whether you're male or female whether you've given birth or not given birth your brain can't hold every second of your existence but it was kind of quite a a wake up call to go i don't hold my life story you know i hold a strand i hold a story that i that that i am manufacturing really or or i'm editing i'm choosing the bits that i'm going to remember because um, they support my sense of self. And there's all kinds of amazing theories around why certain things lodge in our memories and don't. But around this time, what was also happening was the World War One centenary programme. Uh, and I was very interested <laughs> by what was happening in that programme that I felt like I am not sure that this is remembering. You know, this thing of lest we forget, I am not sure what, There's a whole load of things going on here and some of these things are to do with remembering and some of these things are to do with asserting a sense of patriotism, using these narratives to push a political agenda, creating narratives, you know, selecting narratives for whatever reason. Um, And I got very interested. So I was very interested on a personal level, but also on a societal level about what we remember and what we choose not to or what we don't. And... And like I said, so, the, so, the process, so something happens that sticks in my head that I can't get rid of. What I then do is try and bring together an, an interesting group of people <laughs> to think about that. Some of those will be artists. Some of those will be people that I've worked with before. And some of them will be people I'm working with for the first time. And I, that, that's always important to me, that there's that combination in a creative team. Um, I, my longest standing collaborator is Alex Elliott, who I met when I was, I met him and I have now been making theatre with him for half my life. So I met him when I was 20. And when I met you as well, Mark, when I came on placement on the Ballroom of Romance, the Barroom of Romance, uh, (laughs) uh, (laughs) uh, a very beautiful production that Northern Stage Ensemble made. And I came on placement with that. uh, And then later started working at Northern Stage with the ensemble. And then Uh, left to set up on Folding Theatre and Alex has continued to work with me all that time. But alongside Alex, you know, on Hold On Let Go, there was also Paul Smith, who's a musician who I've loved and uh, admired for a long time and writes what I was interested... The reason I invited Paul to be part of that process is he writes songs that are very much like a a snapshot of a moment, almost like a picture. They're very visual songs often and they're very place-based often, very emotional. You know, that kind of this is a moment and it's held in a song. I was really interested in that, being part of the mix. Uh, Luca Rutherford, uh, brilliant, brilliant young writer. She's not even that young. She's 10 years younger than me. You can work out the maths yourself. But, you know, um, a writer who's really finding her voice at the moment uh, is now one of our associate artists at Unfolding Theatre. Alongside that, Selena Thompson worked with us as uh, a dramaturg, as a mentor. Um, to the process and again i was really interested in selena's input because she's amazing but also because she'd made i'd been to see salt alongside other of her work but which is so much about what strands of history are we holding up and what are we not um and it was so bringing those people together and then on top of that spending time with this group of older women that i mentioned having chats with them writing poems with them about them looking back on their life um we also spent time with some parents and babies at Biker Sans Community Centre, spending time with them kind of going, like, in this really super precious moment of time, like, you are kind of guardians of your baby's memory, and what are you holding, and what are you what gets, which stories get remembered and which don't, and how can we help you capture little snapshots from each day. So some of those, you know, those mums and babies didn't necessarily know they were part of creative process that was feeding this show they were making something they were making memory books for them and their baby that was their primary then you know i'd talk about making the show the older women were much more aware of the process and and we were sharing work in progress with them and they were coming in to visit rehearsals and seeing kind of early early work in progress sharings um but it's just spending time spending time with people and kicking ideas around and and i always love having people in a room who are not theatre makers you know and 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 I also I suppose another principle of how do I work is asking people to come and making sure that you're asking them to do the thing that they do really well so not asking someone to come and then asking them to deliver something which isn't really the thing that they do I kind of think what's interesting is if you invite people on those terms they often offer stuff you never would have expected so Paul came and he wrote songs you know he, he spent time absorbing what was happening in the room, you know, <laughs> watching all kind of failed drama experiments, you know, you know, me feeling slightly self-conscious about the messiness <laughs> of trying to make theatre and how uncool so much of it is. But he also shares an ability to be uncool, which is very beautiful. Um, and he went away and wrote some songs and worked with Mariam Rosai, brilliant sound designer and musician herself. Again, that was a new collaboration. Mariam and Paul hadn't worked together before. Um but then, what came from that is—is is we wanted the whole piece to have this sound design, and what what came out, and again, it's like, you, this, how did it happen? I remember Marianne being really interested in this sense, yeah, this sense of sound that was always there—the kind of white noise of of radio and of recorded sound, um, something that felt very immersive—and we started talking about radio. And and then you know Paul, had, we'd never asked Paul to perform in the piece in terms of spoken voice, but he has done a bit of radio, and he was really so he, you know, it was kind of like who will be the voice of the radio? And I was saying to Marianne, well, do you want to? And I said, Paul, do you want to? And Marianne was like, no, <laughs> he should do it. Um, and Paul was really happy to do it. And I think, um, and I think it's really nice those moments of inviting people in and letting them draw their lines and letting them bring what they bring. Um, yeah. So yeah. Making space, bringing people together who are different, uh, seeing what comes out and testing stuff along the way. Um, I mean, my word, we put that, some of that stuff, for that, that was a really hard show to make. Wayne says, I say this about every single show that I make, that I always say, this is the hardest, this is the hardest one yet. And he says, you always say that. But we had some real moments of going, we just can't find, we just like, really really not sure you know some stuff that felt okay but it it was really difficult and there was some really massive scope of what is it about and and alex has got this really interesting family history about his mom was a child during the spanish civil war so we were kind of interested in that it was set in a kitchen thinking about the kind of um, metaphors of canning like cans and preserves and um sourdough bread we were ahead of our time in uh, <laughs> in, uh, in baking a lot of sourdough but that sense of starters and how they you know the, what what what's held by that kind of continuation of fermenting and um baking um and luca was imagining all this stuff about kind of being sucked into a black hole and something very fantastical and imaginative and it was massive and it was really hard to find the way. And then also I remember with Alex Estran thinking, is it too boring? Cause it was really about his family, his memories of his kitchens. And, and then I remember again, those kind of little moments. I remember Selena Thompson saying in one of um, in a Skype call that uh, me and Luca had with her just before we were sh- gonna share some work in progress at Battersea Arts Centre. And I, I was really kind of ready to say to BAC, like, I'll stand up and I'll talk a bit about what we're trying to do, but we've got nothing to share. It's a complete, you know, mess. And then Selena one morning just said, um, I think it was the morning we were meant to be doing the first sharing, just said, What about if you ask smaller questions that you're, you know, so suddenly that gave permission to think, actually, Alex's story is not boring. Alex is a brilliant storyteller and we should trust that, you know. And actually that gives us permission to suddenly... And then it was really quick. <laughs> Load of stuff kind of fell into place about, yes, Luca can go on this incredible imaginative journey, imagining being sucked into space and seeing everything of everything that's been forgotten and everything that's been held onto. And Alex can do something that's really micro, that's his life and his, like, the those kinds of little gems of, of, of an ordinary life, whatever an ordinary life is. You know, nobody's life is ordinary, but um, it suddenly kind of found a way for it to be navigated.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that's absolutely fascinating to hear that, you know, <clears throat> I think, like, waiting for your brain to get out of, your, out of the way of yourself sometimes can be, like, the hardest thing to do. Um, and to hear, you know, about how uncool a theatre-making process is, I think that's like so spot on because it is so messy and it is sort of, you know, it's a lot of trial and error and and trying and trying again and working it out. And I think that's such a great description of of where, because when I hear you talk about it, I recognize so much of the stuff that I do and where I am. And sometimes your brain is full of just white panic about how you're going to get to the end. Will it make sense? And that's an absolutely fascinating description of a making process. I
1: think um, I was remembering this, uh, as you know, it was my 40th birthday last week and uh, I made a playlist. I asked people to send songs that reminded them of me. Um, But ahead of that, my mum had put on this other, she thought it was that playlist, but it was a different playlist that I'd built of my favourite songs. And one of them was um, Once In A Lifetime, Uh, by Talking Heads which I love and as a kind of vision of how uncool the making process was for Hold On Let Go so you've got to bear in mind I'm working with Paul Smith for the first time I've known him for a while but it's the first time we've worked together and I set up a drama exercise where you try and where it's like can you recreate a song that you really love do you really know the lyrics of it and I was trying to explain this as a like we'll all take a turn to sing something of like our favourite song but like can we really remember it (laughs) And I was getting kind of unsure face from Alex and Luca in the room. So I was like, okay, I'll go first. Uh, I'll do Talking Heads once in a lifetime. I'm not, like you, Mark, very happy to sing in a group. Wouldn't consider myself a solo singer. Um, so I launched in to try out to sing <laughs> once in a lifetime, which I couldn't really, which I actually can remember very few of the words. Um, so then I was trying to, like, do the video, you know, when they do the walk. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, and Paul was there with his little notebook with his face of kindness, Uh, but I was just thinking, what are you doing Rigby, you're
0: a... So when it all comes together, what can, what's an unfolding theatre show like, like what's at its heart what can an audience expect you've touched on a few of those things but you know when you walk into one you know you're in one so so if you have an experience in unfolding theatre sure, can you describe it and I know they're all different but you know come on give it a go
1: I uh okay so I'm going to use the words of others um because um it's always hard to describe your own work see it from the, for me it's just normal it's just how theatre should be and then other people see it and they're like oh this is a uh, this is really weird or bonkers. It's it's not weird. It's they're really welcoming. So I think that's a, a really big thing of an Unfolding Theatre show. Uh it acknowledges that you're there. It's really happy that you're there. Um we've been talking a lot about hosting recently. Um I remember um Richard from BAC who'd who'd helped us get offered us some residency space for making Hold On Let Go. He came to see it in Edinburgh and said, Oh, Unfolding Theatre, you have such a way with my Aww. heart. I think there is something about la- like making stuff that really lands um, when it works, <laughs> that really, really lands with you. We talked to a lot of our audiences last year to, to say, you know, how would you describe it? And people kept talking about humanity. Um, I think, you know, we really invite people in and sometimes that's in, sometimes that's in a way of just making space for them to be and to imagine, but sometimes that's really active. So when we made Putting the Band Back Together, anybody can be in the show's house band so you can turn up an hour or so before the show you learn four songs we made that show with ross millard from the future heads and he takes you through four songs and then there's a moment 20-25 minutes into the show where basically Ross says, we'd now like to welcome to the stage tonight's house band. And whoever in the audience has come to that rehearsal stands up and comes to stage. And that invitation is there for people who, we've had professional musicians join the house band. We've had somebody joining saying like, I own a guitar, I don't play it. And I thought this would be a good way to start. <laughs> Great, you're in. You know, kids turning up with like toy bells, I remember. Um, you know, all kind, You know, it's just a welcome. and And that means it might be messy. Uh, And that's okay. Usually I try and build structures that hold that, you know, um, and that make it rewarding. I always say that the, so audience participation is often a feature of unfolding theater shows. And I know that's a phrase that makes some people worried, but our guiding principle for audience participation is that the reward for taking part has to be really high and the risk needs to be really low. So putting the band back together you have to volunteer to join the house band. You're not going to be told to suddenly stand up and sing. You know, nobody's going to be exposed. And um, with Best in the World, um, that's a show that's about celebrating our gold medal moments. It's about looking at world champions, but thinking what are our, our moments in our lives that need to be celebrated or could be celebrated. And people make a paper dart during the course of the show and write it on the wings and send that dart to stage. And it's, so it's completely anonymous. People don't have to stand up. They don't have to talk. And actually I often find when you give people an invitation like that, people are incredibly open and people will be really, will really take that space and um, yeah, and it can be incredibly beautiful. Um, I, I am less interested in audience participation that feels like it serves the artist but is exposing or vulnerable or uncomfortable for the person taking part. Um, so that it's not, it's not like that. Um, there's often a lot of music, live music. I love, I wanted to be a musician really when I was a teenager, but I stopped playing and it never happened. So I had to become a theatre company instead. (laughs) Um, (laughs) so a lot of, you know, almost all of our shows feature either live music or, or, or music that's been composed especially for it and uh, appears as recorded sound. Um, often people are playing themselves. You know, that's not always true, but um, often people are being who they really are um, and taking you on a journey from there. Sometimes there's food. Usually there's some laughter. I mean, I think the thing that... There is often silliness, and and one thing I've got frustrated by is sometimes I think we are not um, held up critically as much as we could be as a theatre company because we we laugh a lot in our shows, and I think sometimes people don't recognise that. Actually, I think people do. I think audiences really get it, but sometimes critics have kind of been a
0: well it's snobby. I think about it. To-
1: we've had lo- We've had loads yep. of lovely, lovely reviews. I'm not kind of, I'm not kind of um, being over precious here, but I think sometimes we don't get held up critically, or we don't get taken, we don't get considered as a kind of very political company, which I think we are political, but it's often on a quite a, a personal level, um, and it's often delivered with whoopee cushions and silliness, and 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 so I think sometimes people think, oh, they're not, they're not, you know, it's not very austere and clearly Mm. intellectual and I think sometimes those kind of give critics permission to say I can say this work is important and I and I I know we don't give those we don't say hello you can you can definitely include this as a in your list of intellectual experiences you know we we are much more interested in creating spaces that are enjoyable to be in and uh full of laughter yeah
0: I agree Mm. I think that's sort of the role of of what you know Uh, culture and how it's delivered in a number of different ways can be sometimes uh, taken because it's not, uh, yeah, because it hasn't, I don't know, for some reason, the critic hasn't seen the the potential weight in actually what it is you're discussing via the humanity and the laughter. And I think that's sort of, well, I think it's just a, uh, yeah, it feels in a space where, like, our industry sometimes I think looks at itself, well, just navel gazes a little bit too much rather than looks out and seeing actually what is the audience feeling and experiencing it beyond what my brain is feeling or telling me to write down on a piece of paper. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I want to ask you about um, your champion's people have opened doors for you and you've mentioned Richard Duffy, I think, from BSC. Mm. I, I don't know if Richard Duffy is one of your champions. You've mentioned Phil McDermott. He is, definitely. And, you know, I think in your journey, because obviously you have to be resilient to, to keep working and moving forward, but sometimes it also needs somebody to put an arm around the shoulder and so come on, come with me. Like, who were those champions and why have they been important to you? Uh, I've been, I, yeah,
1: there are, yeah, there are definitely champions yeah as you say Richard and BAC generally have been really um important in unfolding theatre's journey particularly and that's felt really important because I think it really helped me think about how the company existed in a national context uh as well as in a regional context um and also I mean Richard really laughs at me but (laughs) I remember when we were talking about making hold on let go and uh and I was saying can we preview it at, at BAC and he was saying well don't don't you want to do that in the northeast and I was saying well no because it's kind of feels safer in London because you know the people who will watch it won't be the people you know who you know that you know the people in the northeast that you know he was saying basically you've got it the other way around most people want to preview something kind of away from the view of you know the uh, you know the, the capital city but I for me it feels like oh well, you know yeah we'll share it with those people down there and then take it to the northeast when it's really ready and uh um uh share it with our our home audience then um i so he's been a champion definitely um i mean the major one who i mentioned earlier on was obviously alan lidyard uh who was artistic director at northern stage when i um you know who, who i wrote a letter to when i was at university saying can i come on placement um I always say to people, I haven't even got drama GCSE. I'm the least qualified theatre practitioner. Um, I, you know, I've got an English degree, but I don't have any drama training at all or qualifications. Um, but I wrote to him and, you know, it, it's definitely worth uh, acknowledging my privilege in that he was a friend of my dad's. So, you know, my dad knew him as, you know, as, as from his kind of work as a writer and, and at that time was writing plays, not many of which that got staged. Um, being unfair on my dad but you know um so there's a reason why Alan said yes uh that wasn't just down to the quality of my letter um but he uh invited me to come on placement for the making of Ballroom of Romance and that really absolutely was a moment for me of going this is what I want to do this is this is 100% what I want to do um and then when I finished university he invited me to come back and I did as a you know, as a voluntary placement, I delivered some projects with the performance group, which was Northern Stage's uh, community performance group at that time. And then a schools contract came up, and uh, to deliver these long-term schools programs. And I remember being interviewed by him and Adele, who was uh, head of participation, Adele Al Saloom, who was head of participation at that time. And um, <laughs> and I remember Alan. Maybe Adele asked, Have you ever worked with children before? And I said, No. And Alan said, Oh, you'll catch on. And, you know, I can imagine, I I kind of look back and I think, I bet Adele was a bit pissed off that Alan just basically wanted to give me this job. And she probably, you know, might have wanted to employ somebody who had any kind of experience or training in delivering it. But um, he made a space for me. And I'm always grateful for that. And, you know, I had these started off as freelance contracts, uh, delivering schools, workshops, which was absolutely a baptism of fire. Um, and I learned a lot very quickly. Um, and then he was creating freelance uh, contracts for me to come and assist him on, on the shows that he was making. And then after not very long, actually, they realised it would probably be cheaper to just employ me full time. And so I was employed as a drama worker and then that became resident director. And you know um yeah so without alan i don't think i don't i don't know what would have happened actually and i'm not 100% confident i would have ended up in theater although i hope i would uh on the flip side of that you know who came in after alan was erica and in some some ways erica opened a door <laughs> for me by by showing me the exit and i say that in the kindest possible way but i think also i i'd got to a point in my kind of career where I was getting frustrated with the opportunities I could and couldn't have within Northern Stage and I think Erica in the most generous way made me aware that it's possible to leave and I remember being full of like I remember we were due to have an appraisal and I was full of all this stuff that I was going to tell her about about you know things I wanted and opportunities and work I wanted to make and why couldn't I make it and rah blah, blah blah and um She'd also done the she she'd done the first year of the claw leadership program, so that was the only reason I knew about it, and I'd applied for it uh just as a kind of demonstration, so I could say to her, "Well, I might leave. Look, check 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 me out. I might leave." And um I remember we had this appraisal, and then she came to my desk, and she was she was smoking. She she doesn't smoke anymore, but she was smoking at the time, and she was saying, "Annie, I know I'm running late, but could I just have five minutes?" just grab a quick cigarette before we have our appraisal. And I was like, yeah, yeah, sure. Here I have with my list of demands and gripes. And (laughs) she went and had a cigarette. And in that time, an email arrived from the Claw programme saying you've got onto the programme. And I never, never thought I would. I was really applying for it just to say I could leave. This is possible that I could leave to send out that message. And then I realised I'd got on it. So then she came up (laughs) to have the appraisal. And I was like, well... I had all this stuff to say and it's completely irrelevant. And, you know, um, and that's really important. You know, it's really important to have people who make you, who don't just give you as much as they can within the parameters of the structure that they are leading, but also people who help you open your eyes and look above the horizon a bit. And I think that's what Erica really did for me. I am embarrassed when I think back to me and her working together. I always think I must have been a nightmare because I was quite frustrated at the time. Um, uh, so, yeah, they they are both key people who opened doors. Phelan, as you said, as a mentor, I suppose, opened doors in terms of the way he invited space for thinking and helped me think through setting up Unfolding Theatre. Um, I've also been really, really... Um, uh, lucky to well I've been really delighted that he set up this whole thing of devoted and disgruntled and created these open spaces for bringing people together every year and in different places um and that's been really a big thing for me in terms of the um uh artists I've met and people I've been inspired you know I think that that framework is such a brilliant way of bringing people together and I've met so many people through it that that have gone on to be really important influences on me or or collaborators or all kinds of things Um, But I also think just so many of the artists that have said yes when I've invited them to work with me, you know, um, like, you know, I always think it's a good sign if you're terrified of asking someone to work with you because they're so brilliant, (laughs) you know. And, like, Selena is an example of that. Selena Thompson, of course. Mariam is, you know, Reza is a brilliant example of that. Ross Millard, Paul Smith. You know, I remember asking Jane Arnfield to work with... Uh, me when I made building palaces our first show alongside Becky Owen Brendan Murphy Paddy O'Connor you know like whenever anybody says yes they open a door you know so I think um I think that's really an important thing
0: great a great answer What have you been up to then for the last 20 weeks as Annie Rigby and as Unfolding as, and this is definitely not a pandemic podcast, but I think, you know, it's definitely, (laughs) it's happening. It is happening. And I think, you know, (laughs) the impact on our industry and our region and our makers uh, and our venues and all the rest of it, what have you been doing as Annie and Unfolding over the last 20 weeks to find your way through it, to uh, help other people find their way through it? Because it's been incredibly strange, hasn't it? To say the least.
1: Mm. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, it has. Uh, I mean, it's awful. And I don't think we really allow ourselves to say that uh, because we're in it and we're just getting through it um, one way or another. One thing I've been really conscious of is it's magnified something which is always true, which is that people are having very different experiences. Um, So I i um, in an experience where, uh, because we're Unfolding Theatre is a national portfolio organisation and gets regular funding from the Arts Council, uh, uh, has a four-year, which has been extended to a five-year funding agreement. I'm not immediately at financial risk, so I am not one of those people who's been really immediately exposed by the financial crisis. I've also been really busy because I'm running the company and... Uh, we're really fortunate to have quite a lot of projects on the go um, and we're doing a lot, you know, which I'll talk about in a bit in terms of how we are a supportive energy uh, in the northeast to, to the wider sector. Um, I've got two kids, so it's been really, really busy for me. I, I cannot wait for the kids to go back to school. Um, but I, I recognise that that is so different to the experience of somebody who's been furloughed which to me from, you know, from my position, looking in a simplistic way of looking at that is like, oh, that's idyllic. I'd love to be furloughed. (laughs) You know, like the one thing I have not got at the moment is time. Um, But I know with that from friends of mine who are furloughed is that it's terrifying and people are really, really scared about whether they've got a job to go back to. Taking away the demands and the rhythm of work out of your life is really problematic I've obviously got a huge number of friends and collaborators who are freelancers who are suddenly you know plunged into having no work there's obviously people who are running venues who are faced with these really impossible sums to try and get to add up and no certainty about the future so it's been a really it's a really awful time and it's hitting people in really different ways and the way it's hitting me is being really busy, and uh, and I'm lucky to say that, and um, one of the things that is true about Unfolding Theatre is that we make work that sits in theatres, but we have always made work that sits in outdoor spaces, that uh, increasingly we've been making work that sits online or is a digital experience in one way or another, um, uh, that works, you know, we are often making work with communities and in community settings, and and that, in some senses, you know, going back to talking about critics, that's the work critics never see. So in some senses, I've sometimes thought if I was going to be more strategic about unfolding theatre, having a really punchy theatre sector profile, I would do less of this because nobody sees it. But it's the work that really matters to us and and is set, fuels us, you know, without, I can't imagine unfolding theatre without it. And I also love that we meet audiences who would never come to theatres in those settings, now, what's been interesting is because we work in those settings, that's why we've stayed busy. Because there are places in which our work sits that are still open, or are looking to reopen, um, or are more, e- you know, or are on online spaces. So, we made a piece a few years ago called Multiverse Arcade. Um, again, with Mariam, who I mentioned before, and Luca and Alex, uh, um, various, and various other people. Imogen Chloe, amazing, amazing. Imogen uh, designed it. And that was all about creating, it was a video and sound installation that looked like a kind of gaming arcade that was all about um, asking young people, um, what's the change we need to make now to save the future? And we were invited by um, uh, 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 yeah, uh, people from Newcastle University, biomedical research teams, various uh, partners within uh, Newcastle University and the NIHR, uh, which I can't remember off the top of my head what it stands for, National Institute of Health Research, I think. Um have commissioned us to make Multiverse Lab, which is all about getting people who are whose voices aren't often heard in influencing health research uh priorities to to make themselves heard to and we and we were gonna create that as a touring installation, but we're now creating that as an online piece, which is really exciting. Um, we are working with um, museums Northumberland at Woodhorn, where we've made work before, because they are reopening on the second of September, and they are conscious that some bits of their site aren't able to be opened up in a COVID secure way. So, and there is a way that the public used to have free ro- like free reign of their site, but they have to now have a kind of route that they go through, and they wanted to make that something that felt creative and felt uh, joyful rather than something that felt um, less than what what audiences can, and visitors can normally do. So they've commissioned us to, to make a piece. So we're working with Bethan Maddox and Ruth Johnson, Nick Williams, Jill Benison, brilliant people, uh, to make that. And again, you know, so it's interesting that working in that way has made us perhaps more... Um, it's meant we're not in a crisis, you know, financially. And the mar- I suppose on a really bold level, the markets for our work still exist. And it is so good for my heart to be working with an organisation on reopening when theatre is still a really long way f- from being able to really think about reopening. That's been really beautiful and has given me hope. And we're still doing work in our local community. So at this very moment, on a doorstep, step in biker or walker i can't remember uh quite where they are at this moment in time but um alex elliott and luca rutherford are being astronauts who have arrived from biker space station and are doing story times with uh local families um like i know northern stage has been doing a load of great stuff on on, on doorsteps uh as have seven stories um and we're joining in on the fun um particularly looking at those relationships that we built with biker sand center some of those mums and babies i was talking about early on going back to some of those families but also working with some of their other families uh, that they support um to just bring a bit of fun you know alex if you check out unfolding Theatre's twitter there's a brilliant picture of alex and luca in these silver uh, coats that they got for a fi- for, for a fiver from oh. ikea <laughs> they look like, they look like they're wrapped in baker foil but um <laughs> they're they're off doing that so that's kind of a lot of the kind of creative work that we've been doing. We also felt we we're not in crisis, we're not a venue, so we're not in the crisis that venues are in. We're not a, f- a freelancer, so we're not in the crisis they are in. So what can we do in this space? And um, we do have things we're worried about longer term, and we're not it's not that the the impact isn't hitting unfolding theater, but we also thought we have. Capacity and, and a bit of thinking space at the minute to be able to do things to support freelancers. So we've given our time to do stuff like helping people draft emergency grant applications to Arts Council. Um, and I was so pleased that so many of the people I helped write uh, their applications were successful. Um, that's been one of the really beautiful things is getting emails saying like, I got it. Um, I don't think they got it because of me tidying up their typos, but you know I think they got it because they're brilliant artists or, or people running brilliant companies. Um and we also have worked with Curious Monkey and yourselves and and a whole load of partners to create Northeast Culture Social. Um, we had a conversation early on, Kate Denby, your executive director, had set up these groups like immediately as lockdown was was kicking off to bring together some at that point it was kind of Newcastle-based executive directors to kind of go. Like, how does furloughing work? Does anybody know how to write this kind of risk assessment for that? You know, so it was really that kind of, um, like very, very um prosaic, practical stuff that needed doing, but really needed doing. And how can we share resources and 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 learn from each other? Um, but really early in that space, I, I just felt really conscious that it was giving me so much to connect in that way. And how could we make a space? For freelancers, or for furloughed staff, or for makers or producers, or the rich mix of people who are part of this uh, sector in this region, and how could we create a space um, to just bring people together and make people feel connected? I I always introduce it and talk about it being like, like being at a bar, like being at Alphabeti, or like being at Northern Stage, or like being at Dance City, or wherever, but that thing, those conversations you have because you're in a space with people. And what's interesting about it happening online is it suddenly makes it accessible to some people who couldn't get to those bars, you know. Or So, you know, of course, Zoom doesn't work for other people. So there's always things to kind of wrestle with. And we've worked really hard and learnt loads about, um, you know, how to try and make the spaces as accessible as possible um, in all kinds of ways. So, yeah, we've been spending quite a bit of time thinking about that and you know um and we sponsored a again like northern stage like november club open class mortal fools we've sponsored um one of the uh freelancers that have joined the freelance task force the scheme that fuel uh got going of trying to bring freelancers together to lobby effectively and um be able to make their voices heard um in the context of this crisis and we were really really Delighted to be able to sponsor, um, to co-sponsor one of those because it just feels really, really important. So yeah, that's what we have to. <clears throat> Not much. And in the midst of all of this, in the midst of all of this, very, very slowly trying to make a new show. So um, we'd always thought this year we'd make a show in Sunderland, with going back to the community that we worked with around putting the band back together, working with Ross Millard again. Um, And Alex and and our team but also with Alison Carr, the playwright and this was our idea, so I'm going to tell you our idea. So what was interesting about that that group of people in Sunderland is amongst, I I mean many things are interesting about them and they're just wonderful humans, but they hold together a really different mix of politics, right through from people who were very much in the kind of remain camp right through to people who were when I mean, one of the people stood for local council as a Brexit campaigner for UKIP, and uh, people who were really kind of strong Brexit campaigners, so it really held this this community held those real really um, opposite ends of that that spectrum. So what our idea was was we were going to make a show that was about a fictional future event set in the near future that would totally reshape uh, how society viewed itself. <laughs> um and blew away that kind of dominant leave remain narrative being the kind of only way we, we were thinking about how communities uh saw themselves and and, and connected so seeing as that's <laughs> happened <laughs> we've had to rethink the show because uh um uh real life overtook us um but what's been beautiful is saying to Ross and Alison and to Alex and then Gary Leiden, who is a, a associate artist digital, but it's also part of the electronic uh, duo Squams. Um, let's keep um, like I don't know what the show is anymore. I have no idea what what we're gonna make, and we don't need to make it within this financial year anymore. We'll probably make it next year. Um, but let's still write your contract, Alison, to commission you as a writer. Let's still commission you as a uh, musician Ross um, and as a songwriter and let's let's just find ways and it's very incremental at the moment um, but it's also really feels like the right thing to do it feels like the right thing to do to keep going no matter how slowly uh, it feels the right thing to do to let go of what the show might have been and uh, make space where the thing it will be will arrive um Alison wrote a really beautiful thing all about deserted ballrooms, this image of deserted ballrooms. She wrote this incredible speech about a kind of sparsely attended the kind of horrendous pain of a sparsely attended <laughs> birthday party. Um and this guy doing this wild dance in the middle of this kind of semi-empty uh ballroom, and it is just completely delicious. So these are like little fragments, you know. Um uh, we've been talking to the the house band, that community of, of people in Sunderland, about how they feel about their city, how they feel about um, now, you know, uh, being disconnected and um, different rhythms of life. Um, yeah, and we'll see where that
0: goes. Wow. Yeah, what an interesting thing to debate, to make a piece of theatre about, especially in Sunderland, who are always, you know, in the race to first, you no know, call, and... Yeah, interesting. And I think I still think, you know, when you're watching the news more and more recently, that thing is definitely bubbling away underneath the surface and is still very present, I think, in lots of people's thinkings. So, yeah, God, I can't wait Absolutely. to say that. That's going to be so Absolutely. interesting. I'd, uh, yeah, it's going to be so interesting to hear that um, debate on a stage, hopefully on a stage, or, yeah. you know, whatever version it is.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it's, yeah, it's really hard to know. I mean, the thing that I'm finding quite difficult at the moment is I find parameters quite inspiring you know if you know okay I'm going to make a show and it's going to be on this beach which means this 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 So I'm going to make the show and it's going to be uh not a show it's going to be like a mission and you get a booklet and you you know and that means this 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 is this, this I think the thing that's difficult at the moment is the not knowing you know so it could be a live show or maybe it's online maybe it's outside maybe you know and I think I'm finding that really tough, um, creatively. Um, so I'm kind of, you know, like, yeah, as you say, you know, and eventually you know, going back
0: to the very beginning of this podcast, when we talk about process, you know, it comes, doesn't it, at some point. And it's not trying mm. to push your creative self into a space yeah. where you do yeah. feel comfortable. Cause currently that space is like, you're still mm. working out. Anyway, blah, blah. um, last question for you and I'll let you go for your tea. Um, uh, Johnny asked me to bring this one back because, yes, I asked somebody who, if they had a superpower, what would it be? And uh, so um, so I'm going to go for um, what I've been watching, listening to, to. So, like, just to relax, I don't know, get your brain out of, out of its, I don't know, whatever. What have you been reading? Give me a list.
1: Okay. Uh, I've read loads, actually, uh, recently. Annoyingly, I probably... Uh, I probably can't pronounce the surname of uh the writer who has blown my mind I'm going to go and grab the book give me two seconds so this is what I am on with right now she is an incredible Polish writer Olga Tokarsuk is going to be my effort at that surname um but she's also read a book written a book called Flights which is you can pick up at waterstones and then the one i that completely blew my mind is um she wrote a book called primeval and other stories and it is just incredible uh it's set in a village in poland it, and it's it's kind of like the 20th century it's kind of about the impact of war and and yet it's totally it's like a magic realist novel set in poland um so it's really kind of folky and weird and wonderful and magical. Um, and you kind of don't realise it's about 20th century history <laughs> it, in the reading of it. And then it kind of, it becomes really obviously so. And yeah, that totally took my breath away. I read Girl, Woman, Other, which uh, by Bernadine Evaristo, which is just, and, you know, it's a, it's about kind of 12 intertwining narratives of black women Um, a lot of them lesbians, not all of them lesbians. Um, And I read it because it, it, you know, it it was a joint winner of the Booker and it is like clearly going to be my kind of book. And and I just kind of thought, yeah, it sounds great. What I didn't know about it before I started reading is quite a lot of it is set in the Northeast, which is beautiful. And and I love that. Um, I mean, some of it's set in Barbados. I've never been to Barbados, but I've been to Berwick and to westgate road and all of that so that was a uh, beautiful and joyful and and yeah very very um very brilliant um in getting you thinking uh uh i've been watching i just watched i may destroy you which is incredible i know i am not the first person to realize this um <laughs> uh and it's (laughs) uh but yeah that I kind of binge watched all of that we went camping a couple of weeks ago and I, I, I watched it all kind of back to back just before I went away so that's been really good uh on the other you know like that's obviously a very um or for people who um haven't seen it it's a very it's about some really tough stuff it's around sexual assault and consent and um and uh, is is really dark at times. As a other part of the emotional spectrum, another thing that is really important to me is um, the programme Gardener's World, but specifically, there's a bit at the beginning where it starts and there's like a soundtrack of the garden, so it might be like insects or birds, and then Monty Don says, <laughs> hello. And I think that, I think that seven seconds is the most relaxing um, um, bit of television that exists. And you know, if I can get that seven seconds of the beginning of Gardner's World, it's just like a. It's
0: not like the repair moment. shop.
1: Um, yeah, I mean, you know, I, we all have, we all have. I mean, I love yeah, me Gogglebox I mean, actually. Like, I don't really watch a lot. I don't, I don't really bother with a lot of TV dramas. I just yeah. watch Gogglebox yeah. to kind of get a, I mean, get a view has kept of it. Me quite and a I, and a again, lot going recently. back. Well exactly laughter those that brother and sister from Blackpool you know they deserve to be honored <laughs> in some way because they brought so much uh, so much joy to so many uh, so and many people. the book
0: you held up was called Drive the
1: Drive your plough over the bones of the dead But I would say if you're going to start with Olga Tokarczuk yeah maybe Primeval and other stories is a good one is a good well, maybe go for that or go for flights go for any of them Um, get involved
0: Annie Rigby thank you so much for the last hour of your life really appreciate it Um, it's been lovely to chat to you oh you too and hopefully see you at some point in I don't know some space with some walls and a bar our thanks to Annie for taking the time to talk so good that we have an Annie Rigby making work supporting artists and championing the Northeast in our region We'd also like to thank all of the artists, collaborators and creatives mentioned in this podcast Thank you to the ever silent producer Johnny, aka Johnny Rothwell for editing the podcast to Mark Melville for soundtracking and to Chris Clayton Scott for doing all the work to get it to you finally thank you for taking the time to listen we really appreciate it please do take a look at the show notes with links to all the resources and websites that we talked about and also if you want to subscribe or leave us some thoughts you know what to do thanks again speak soon